Hello and welcome to the JPEG podcast for May 2021. I'm Nicole Tyson and I will shortly be joined by our editor-in-chief, Dr. Paula Hillard, and our wonderful guests, Dr. Katie DeBeck and Nicole Todd, who are going to be talking with us today about their review article in the April edition titled Gynecologic Care for Pediatric and Adolescent Patients Undergoing Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplantation. So we're very excited to have guest speakers today and happy to have you all on this podcast. Stay tuned and please enjoy. Well, hi, Paula. Nice to hear from you today. Great. Good to hear from you uh, too. I know we had talked about some great books uh, that we were going to talk about this podcast. And this one was The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Um, so yeah, tell me what you thought about that book. I really enjoyed it. Um, it, it really was, um, it, it took me to a, a different place that, you know, I think a book can, can take you to a place and it can get you into, into the characters' minds and, and such, but the, the place was a, a completely different place for me. Yeah, no, I, I loved it too. I thought it was just such great storytelling, like I was dying to know because it kind of alternates the story between the different sisters. And I'm like, but wait, I want to hear more about this sister before it went to the next sister and then their daughters. And I just loved how she interweaved all these lives together. You know, it's like, it felt like you were watching a mini series in some ways, the way that she wrote it. It really did. And uh, I, it was something that I didn't want to put down. It wasn't, it wasn't a page turner in terms of lots of action but it just was well-written and, and made me want to keep reading. Yeah. So yeah, you're like cheering for everyone. So I would say that's a thumbs up. And I, uh, as I was telling you earlier, I actually read her first book, The Mothers, which I actually really loved too. She's a great writer. So that might be another great book for folks who are liking um, The Vanishing Half. Do you want to say anything more about The Mothers? Um, no, I mean, it was just, I don't want to be like a spoiler, but it was very similar. You know, it's kind of about women's stories and, and their families and sort of these big choices that we make in our lives um, and, and how we deal with those consequences. It, it, in some ways, it had a lot of parallels to The Vanishing Half. Um, but again, it had a lot of complicated women stories and experiences and sort of big decisions that resonate in the world of OBGYN, I think. So it was, it was good. Great. It's nice to hear that recommendation as well. Although that's not the next one that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> no, we have another new book. We've chosen another. <laughs> yeah. So introduce our listeners to that one, Paula. So that one is Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Um, and this is by Peggy Orenstein. And uh, I have just, uh, I'm about a tenth of the way through, so I'm not very far into it. But, um, and I had to check the date that it was written too, because it's sort of about this new landscape. And, and of course, we listen to our patients about their lives and how they're feeling about their bodies and, and feeling about sex. But the author really interviewed in depth, I think it was about 70 um, adolescent girls, and I think the age was something like 15 to 20 or something, uh, something in that range. And uh, I'm finding it fascinating and, and really thinking about um, what is the world like 
for girls now, for adolescents now. And there's so many things that are different from when I was a teenager. Um, but certainly the way that that girls are sexualized and expected to be sexual and expected to be liberated and the, the, the whole, um, you know, being a virgin or being a slut and with where is there in between. Yeah. And it looks like this was written still five years ago. But right. 2016. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it caught me like when you gave you gave me I'll let the readers in to know that you gave me some great choices to pick for our next book. But of course, this title was like, well, yes, that's the one we should read. We should. Um, but I also read the, the cover and it says this just this one sentence was like, well, two sentences was the clincher, which is a generation gap has emerged between parents and their girls. The mothers and fathers of tomorrow's women have little idea what their daughters are up to sexually or how they feel about it. And I think, um, you know, that's caught my eye, especially as a, a caregiver, right? For these young girls who are here, but I want more info. Yeah. Well, and, and I sort of feel like we may hear more than some mothers here. Yeah, I think we do hear <laughs> more than some mothers. <laughs> Just speaking to my uh, Friday alone, I feel like I heard a lot more. <laughs> It's so, true. It's also yeah, it kind is. of a privilege, right, to have that. It is. It is very much a privilege to share these young women's lives. So thanks, Nicole. I appreciate oh, joining you. And, we'll just dive right into our great articles next. Sounds good. Well, welcome. I am so excited to be here today with Dr. Paula Hillard and Kate DeBeck, who's in Washington, and our wonderful Nicole Todd, who's calling in or podcasting in from Vancouver, Canada. So welcome all of you. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. So I think we were just going to um, dive right in and talk about the GYN care for our pediatric and teen patients who've undergone um, stem cell transplantation. I know, Dr. Hillard, you had some good questions. So thank you for this, doing this review. We're really pleased to have it. And I would want to hear a little more about the context at your institution. I, I guess I my historical context of patients and patient bone marrow and, and uh, hematopoietic uh, stem cell transplantation is that before we established a pre-transplant consultation at our institution and the previous one where I was, it was not unusual to get a call from our uh, hematology service asking us, telling us they had a patient who was having bleeding and her counts were bottoming out and uh, they wanted us to stop her bleeding yesterday. So in an effort to try to pre prevent that, we at our institution have developed some protocols, but I'm just curious about your institutions and, and how uh, things went there and what prompted you to, to be able to do the review. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that. Um, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center here in Seattle um, have uh, been pioneers in the transplant world. And um, so we have a number of patients, both adult and pediatric, who undergo transplant. And I think similar to your experience, um, the as gynecologists, we were sort of brought in at random and unexplained <laughs> intervals, um, depending on more urgent needs. And we recognized 
that it might be helpful to have a clear pathway for accessing gynecology. And so we started um, as part of folks' pre-transplant evaluation, having them see gynecology as one of their many, many appointments that they have in their pre-transplant workup. Um, and it became clear that we needed to uh, have protocols in place for things that we should discuss, both for our adult patients as well as our pediatric patients uh, prior to their transplant. And um, there's some great literature out there about uh, gynecologic care, um, primarily Pam Stratton, uh, Dr. Pam Stratton from NIH, um, and uh, a lot about the adult population, but less so about adolescents and, and younger girls. Um, and so Nicole and I got together, we were trying to remember, but sometime 2018, 2019, and put together a NASPAG workshop. And then from the workshop was born this review. Sounds great. Um, one of the things that, one of the points I would make uh, to listeners in terms of things that you do uh, as uh, someone who is an academician is that you make whatever you do count for, I was advised three things. So you do an ASPAG workshop, you put it together as a study, and then you um, at some point write your review. And all three of those things go together um, for count three and one, counting as three and one. So make those NASPAG workshops count. Absolutely. They um, can transition into local um, CME talks as well. They can be helpful Absolutely. for grand rounds. Um, so you get to um, utilize those, those skills that you acquire in prepping for your NASPAG workshop in lots of different ways. It also, speaks to, um, it also speaks to the networking, because I believe I asked a question at um, a talk at NASPEG, and that's, I think Kate came up to me afterwards. So it's all um, the importance of attending um, our AGMs and, and asking the questions and meeting people and really utilizing that. Um, and now we've got like a cross Canada partnership where we're, we're sharing information. So I think that's good. Absolutely. I cannot wait for the return of in-person meetings for precisely those kinds of connections. <laughs> it is so true. And, and Paula, you always talk about how PAG is sort of a small, um, small group still, and JPAG is still a sort of emerging journal. And that's why case reports and these sort of things are still so helpful. So you can share, you know, a lot of these unique cases to try to optimize care and management. So um, let's dive in to our articles um, or into this article. Um, I think we kind of go through the article in a really organized way. You guys did a great job at that, sort of addressing sort of pre-transplantation and post-transplantation. Um, I'm sorry, with the peri-transplantation in between. So it's sort of a nice um, organized way to think about these patients, depending on which points that were consulted um, to help take care of them. In terms of the pre-transplant arena, um, what's sort of unique and what are the highlights in terms of thinking about cervical cancer screening and, um, you know, sexuality and periods? Like how, how do you guys approach these patients when you, when you meet and counsel them? Yeah, I sure. think, oh, sorry, go ahead, Nicole. I was going to say, sure, uh, um, Nicole here. Uh, you know, it's, it's really hard because it's not really clearly documented as far as how to approach these, these um patients and a lot of times they end up being um, grouped in with like other immunocompromised populations such as HIV. Um, we did manage to find the American Society of 
colposcopy and cervical pathology did did at one line sort of recommend every yearly screening for the first three years after transplant um, and then every three years after that but I think it just speaks to the importance of of, of don't forget the reproductive um, care of these people uh, because I know a lot of times it gets lost in the shuffle as far as their current cancer treatment uh, goes but asking the important questions when have you last had a pap smear I I straddle both the adult and the pediatric world. So in our adult graft versus host disease, making sure their mammograms are up to date, their pap smears are up to date, um, and um, asking about healthy sexuality and really emphasizing the importance of healthy sexual behaviors, not forgetting that um, people may be sexually active during their treatment. And, and how do you advise people around that? Are there times when they should avoid specific types of intercourse? Are there conversations they need to have with their partner, such as if they're on cytotoxic medications and not forgetting the importance of preventing sexually transmitted infections and also preventing pregnancy if they're sexually active in a way such that pregnancy could be a risk. I think um, similarly, so my approach um, for the pre-transplant visits is uh, first to kind of set the stage for the patients. Um, Pre-transplant, many of these patients will have somewhere around a dozen appointments that they have to see. Um, so they see dental, cardiology, pulmonology, endocrinology, um, and sometimes they come to us um, overwhelmed, deer in headlights, not even sure why they're there to see us. Uh, so I try to set the stage first and um, explain what our specialty is, because for the younger patients, sometimes they don't even... Um, have a concept of what gynecology is and um, the the things that we'll be talking about that are um, peritransplant and post-transplant considerations. The other thing that I've done that um, has been helpful uh, for I think reducing the stress related to the visits, both for the patients and for the caregiver who comes with them, is to have handouts printed so that they don't feel that they have to remember every single detail. So we have a couple of handouts at Seattle Children's on some of the topics that that they may encounter. Um, so we have a handout on primary ovarian insufficiency, a handout on um, menstrual suppression for adolescents, Another one for the uses of Lupron um, in, um, in, in general, but um, obviously can be applicable to this population. Others on sex and cancer treatment, uh, pregnancy and cancer treatment, um, and um, vulvovaginal GVHD. So they kind of get a packet that they can um, look to or turn to um, after the visit if, if they wish. Um, and it sort of walks through the things that we talked about. Um, and then in terms of the way the visit is conduct conducted, similar to other adolescent visits, I'll... Um, after I sort of set the stage telling them what we do as pediatric and adolescent gynecologists and what the focus of our visit is, I'll let them know that um, we'll be talking as a group for a little bit. And then if an adolescent um, is, is present rather than a younger person or an adult, um, I'll mention that we'll speak privately for a bit and then um, wrap things up with the caregiver and the teen at the end. Um, the visits usually uh, take a while. Um, so, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. And I, th um, I think that having that time is a luxury that not everybody is afforded. Um, but fortunately, we are able to have that kind of time with the patients. And I think it helps for relationship building when then they do need our services. Um, 
in the hospital or um, post-transplant. Yeah, that is outstanding. Um, one of my questions to you is do you, in that time that you get to meet as sort of a, a multidisciplinary team, do you have the opportunity to talk to the patient confidentially? How do you approach that? Yeah. Um, so usually in their pre-transplant workup, those 10, 12 visits that they might have are not <laughs> happening simultaneously. They usually happen over the course of about three or four days. Um, and usually we are, um, are just one visit. And so they're, so there aren't um, other folks seeing them simultaneously during our visit. So I absolutely have time with the teen alone. And um, just like with other teen um, focused visits, I'll let them know that we'll be spending some time talking with them privately during the visit. And then I have time to chat with them confidentially. And, and oftentimes that is a place where we do find out um, that they're sexually active and oftentimes is not something that they've relayed to the rest of their team, which I think um, can be really important. So then we talk about how um, that'll be documented and um, relayed to their other members of the team if necessary um, and um, spend a little bit more time talking about the um, sex and cancer treatment. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and Nicole, you alluded to something I always think is like, you know, very interesting and we don't really think about these things, but when you talk to them and they are having sex or planning to have sex and I mean, teens do have sex. Um, how do you address that? Um, ex like the partner exposure to cytotoxic treatments? Like what, what do we know? And then how do you present that to the team? Well, I think, you know, um, we, we have a lot of discussions with people as far as um, their cytotopic medications about how they handle their own, um, how they handle their own bodily fluids. But I wonder if we don't leave that out when talking to adolescents. And so there may be times when they're on cytotoxic treatment, uh, such that they shouldn't be having any sort of penetrative intercourse. We don't have any evidence to say that condom use or barrier um, uh, barrier protection is actually effective for that. So having those open conversations, making sure all the teaching handouts that Kate has talked about specifically addresses that. When what do we define as bodily fluids? Um, how do we normally, you know, talk to caregivers, the patient themselves about it? And how do we actually incorporate healthy sexual behavior? Because um, people are sexual our sexual beings and making sure that we're talking to them about it, having open communication so that they know that, Oh, I did have a question. What does it include? And then coming back and circling and talk to us. Yeah, that that's super helpful. Um, so moving on just a little bit, and I'm sure as you're talking to these teens, they're, they're not really necessarily thinking about optimizing birth control or their periods. Um, so maybe talk us through some of the, you know, the, the pre-treatment and the breakthrough bleeding treatment approaches, both, you know, when you, in your section of pre-transplant and peri-transplant, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, bleeding periods, obviously, because we're gynecologists. So I think I think the best thing is is for us to try and have protocols in place. And so Kate's already mentioned that at her institution they they do have protocols. I'm aware that Sick Kids in Toronto has protocols that they use. We here in Vancouver are doing our best to to initiate these protocols. And so looking for mentorship or leadership as far as how to do these goes. So whether or not finding a colleague, you know, at a, at one of these NASPEG events or or through JPEG publications. There are three that we mentioned in there, one by Bunuat et al., another one by Andrew James, and a third by ACOG that kind of talks about these. I think the main message and what we want to get out of this piece 
is to really advocate for our patients that we all need to work together and we all need to ensure um, that patients are aware um, of the possible complications or side effects of their treatment and early intervention is better. We know all the research is out there. The earlier that we can actually get to the point of trying to stop periods, the better that we are, right? When we talk about um, managing, managing unscheduled bleeding, we talk about Lupron, we talk about combined hormonal contraceptives like the pill, the patch, and the ring, although the ring may not be a great idea if you are struggling with mucositis or the progestin-only options. And so the earlier that you can give Lupra or GnRH agonists like uh, in mid-luteal phase, the more likely you are going to be to stop the bleeding um, from that perspective. Um, we And then combining whether if their bleeding doesn't stop with the with the GnRH agonist is whether or not we need to add on either progestin-only options or, or combined hormonal contraceptives, knowing that as a patient moves through their cancer treatment, they may acquire other absolute or relative contraindications to the hormones that we use. And then if you add an additional layer of requiring contraception, um, we know that IUDs don't have to be routinely removed. This shouldn't be a part of um, pre-treatment uh, of patients who are about to undergo a stem cell or um, stem cell transplant. Uh, you know, copper IUDs may have a consideration for removal if the patient is struggling with increased unscheduled bleeding. Our hormonal IUDs that we have available, you can leave them in. You can also consider to add them. Not great times to add them would obviously be if a patient is, you know, acutely ill or neutropenic or um, are having heavy menstrual bleeding, specifically the heavy menstrual bleeding, because it may lead to increased expulsion, but that we shouldn't um, not use these options. And I think that the uh, CDC uh, medical eligibility criteria for contraceptive use provides us with great guidance as far as different contraceptive options that we can use. Yeah, if absolutely. I may mention just very briefly a, um, a word of caution related to menstrual suppression in this context is that I have learned from experience that when we talk about menstrual suppression, we need to be really careful about whether we're talking about Depo-Lupron or Depo-Provera. And sometimes we just say Depo. And I have seen more than once um, incorrect orders um, or incorrect uh, administration of medications when there might have been a verbal order and one of the cautions against a verbal order is is this potential confusion for depolution. That's, that's an excellent point. The other thing that I have seen here and is, a, is another sort of safety consideration is that I think um, depending on people's frame of reference and prior experience, they assume um, GnRH agonist dosing is all the same. So there have been some cases where a patient um, has perhaps received a, um, a Depo-Lupron dose um, prior to coming to see us. Um, and then um, it's been assumed that it is the 11.25 dose. And actually it's in fact been the, um, the one month dosing, um, the 3.75 milligram dosing. And so I think um, just like uh, clarity and language is important important regarding Depo-Provera versus Depo-Lupron, I think the dosing can also be really helpful. Um, I was going to say one of the things that Nicole and I 
I, I don't want to say struggled with, but we worked through is um, that there are institutional differences um, and the um, various teams and their input um, can affect the choices. So at um, Seattle Children's, um, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance and University of Washington, there's sort of a long held institutional bias against using combined hormonal contraceptives for these patients. And there is data and there um, are other institutions who use them. But I think being mindful of, of what some of those institutional biases are can be helpful um, so that everybody um, is um, approaching the patient um, with the same sort of messaging um, and um, a, a level of comfort. So we tend towards the progestin-only methods um, here um, at our institution, but again, I know that others um, use more of the um, combined hormonal contraceptives, and that's why we wanted to paint this in um, as broad a brushstroke. Similar to the cervical cancer screening, um, we wanted to make sure that um, there was some longevity in the recommendations we recommend, so as, as those recommendations change over time, as well as um, generalizability and applicability across countries because Canada um, and the U.S. don't always um, align on their recommendations. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good point, and I was going to bring that up as we talk about IUDs and acceptance. Um, I mean, this is across so many complicated patients with medical conditions, but certainly in this realm, um, sort of attaining something in writing to show, look, these are sort of best practices. Uh -huh. uh, IUDs are okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think that's convincing people of that's an accomplishment right there. Yeah, I think um, it... I think the first case report I saw about um, use of IUDs through transplant was not that long ago. It was within the past five years. And before that, I can remember early in my practice with these patients, um, any and all IUDs were, were requested to be removed, um, just as braces were recommended to be taken off. Um, basically, any any potential nidus for infection was, was seen um, as something that needed to be taken care of. Um, and I think that um, uh, the value of case reports to say, you know, look, there's there have been this case or these cases that have demonstrated safety can be really helpful um, in making recommendations. Um, the other um, resource that I think is really helpful and was one of our citations is the Chang et al. Um, that discusses therapeutic amenorrhea and contraception during uh, hematopoietic cell transplantation. That's a, that's a great um, resource as well um, and has a, has a protocol um, embedded within it if people are, are looking for other sources. That's excellent. Yeah, that's the second reference in this article. Mm -hmm. It's a great one. Thank you. Paula, did you have any other thoughts on the? No, I was musing just briefly in my head about uh, <laughs> the use of the term therapeutic amenorrhea, um, which is a, a term that I have used when writing about menstrual suppression and, uh, and like a lot uh, and think it definitely can be. And, and talking about our use of hormonal therapies for therapeutic amenorrhea, I think can be helpful. So I, I love that term. It is. And there's actually a nice little article about therapeutic amenorrhea in Elle magazine this month. Um, just talking about why are we still having periods, not necessarily in these patients, but just in general. So I think the more mainstream conversations, then it becomes, you know, uh, easier to handle 
these conversations in patients who particularly don't need to have extra bleeding. Yeah, I've, I've definitely borrowed that term. I, um, I really like it and appreciate it. And I think in, um, the handout that we use, um, that we give to our patients about the options that they can think about or choose or use for therapeutic amenorrhea, um, interestingly, is actually um, derived from your article, Dr. Hillard, with Dr. Anna Altschuler, who is a yes. former resident um, and then became a family planning fellow um, at your institution. Um, and so we the handout that we came up with was was basically an adaptation from from your article. So we appreciate that it's being used. <laughs> I, I, it's it's like full circle, <laughs> all these interwoven connections in the JPEG and ASPEG world. And it just keeps growing. Yep. And then any so comments or, or thoughts? I was just thinking about post transplant, and we sort of talked about we we got to the point of, of breakthrough bleeding, and then kind of wandered around a, and it, very interesting and, and all worthwhile. But I'm I'm wondering about post transplant as we um, I have several questions. One uh, is about the the POI and. Um, the difficulty I have experienced in encouraging young women to stay on their hormone therapy mm-hmm. with POI. And if I wondered if you all had any particular comments or thoughts about that. Nicole, did you want to take that one? I'd be happy sure. to talk to you. I feel like I've been <laughs> um, maybe talking too much, but I, I certainly have a couple thoughts on it. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's important to make sure that we're looping back. And so it's not really a one and done um, interface with, with us as, as pediatric adolescent um, gynecologists, endocrinologists, um, providers, it's about circling back. And so whether or not it's circling back to see if, if the, the hormone that they're on is still appropriate based on any additional comorbidities that they have, whether or not, you know, they still require contraception or not, how they're feeling, you know, how are you feeling now that you're done? Are you, or that you're done treatment or how are you feeling as far as, your sexuality you are you in a a, do you engage in sex where 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 contraception is needed have you thought about having a family and and sort of circling back to on a lot of these conversations with regards to the the poi you know it's it's still not clear whether or not um hormone therapy uh versus combined hormonal contraceptives is you know whether one is is Um, better than the other one, um, which is why we should, you know, encourage all of our collaboration so that we can, we can really help um, gain a good body of knowledge to sort of go forward. I think sort of at our institution, it's, it's traditional hormone therapy, according to the SRA guidelines on POI, uh, unless somebody needs contraception, and if they want contraception, then it's, it's choosing a combined hormonal contraceptive with at least 30 micrograms of, of ethanol estradiol and not skipping the hormone uh, free interval. But it's really kind of a conversation with the, with the, with the individual as to what they want. Some people just want to feel normal and they want to look like what their, their friends are using. And so a one and done pill um, maybe works for them in Canada. We don't have very many one and done pills as far as um, hormone replacement as it regards to menopause. Uh, But uh, sort of seeing 
Because I always say, you know, the best medication is the one that you want to take, right? Um, yeah, and I can leave it to Kate. Yeah, um, I was going to say that this is where the um, the non-physician, um, non-provider piece of post-transplant care um, is kind of critical. So one of the things that um, is done up here is there, there are special transplant coordinators who help to arrange everybody's visit. So we a lot of our patients are coming from Seattle and Western Washington, but they may also be coming from all over the country and sometimes all over the world. And um, so they have coordinators, they're called the green team coordinators. Um, and um, they arrange for people to have visits at three months and one year and then yearly thereafter. And um, basically patients are given an itinerary and they come into town for two to three days and they hit all their visits and check all their boxes. And I think that that um, helps with the adherence piece um, that um, when when folks know that they're going to be um, seen for their visits um, and um, helps to, um, to, to have that ongoing relationship to check in and modify as needed. You know, perhaps we started someone on more traditional hormone therapy, um, and then in the interim, they become sexually active. And when they have an established relationship, I think it helps that they're able to communicate um, those changes with us. And um, if not, they can bring it up at their scheduled visit, and we can make modifications to their POI treatment plan. Um, the other thing that, that, that we've done for a couple of patients is... Um, uh, continue them on um, their estrogen patch, but use something that's reliable for contraception, like an Explanon or um, a levonorgestrel IUD um, for, for contraception. Um, and then also, um, like Nicole was saying, um, combined continuous pills for those patients. But I think having ongoing interface with the patients helps with the adherence piece. Yeah, that's excellent. I mean, it sounds like you guys both have really great kind of rhythms and team collaboration and obviously protocols. So I'm so glad you're sharing this all with us. Um, and I think I know we were going to um, probably wrap up pretty soon because this has just been a great discussion. But I, I didn't want to ignore um, the topics of the vulvovaginal graft versus host disease. I know you wrote some great um, insight and you have some things in the future you wanted to share, too. Yeah, um, this is um, a, a, another, a, a nod to another NASPEG um, collaboration, but um, this year, Dr. Stephanie Cizek had um, posters at, um, at uh, NASPEG about um, some post-transplant complications related to vulvovaginal GVHD, and I think there's going to be more forthcoming about that. Um, I think that we have as yet to fully define um, exactly what and how, um, what ways to accomplish a vulvovaginal GVHD exam on our younger patients. On older and adult women, I think it's pretty clear that the recommendation is for at least once yearly vulvar and vaginal examinations to look for um, evidence of um, vulvar um, disease and um, or more severe disease like um, vaginal sneaky and um, and um, 
occlusions related to GVHD, but in younger patients who may not tolerate exams, I think it is a little bit more challenging. Um, we recommend at minimum looking externally um, for evidence of vulvar involvement of GVHD and also thinking in the context of what other um, signs of GVHD they have, knowing that vulvovaginal GVHD is going to be more likely if they have other sites of involvement. Um, but the sort of screening and evaluation of the intravaginal piece, I think, is something that's still in question. And I know that there are some institutions institutions that, for instance, will do like a lubricated Q-tip um, or others that will, um, if the patient tolerates it, look um, using a speculum or um, if there are significant enough concerns and the exam is not tolerable, um, consider um, an examination under anesthesia. Um, but I think that there's going to be more to come from that. Um, so we'd encourage people to kind of stay tuned into the literature and, and, and watch for recommendations and suggestions there. And I think one of the more other things to sort of add to that is we actually don't know um, how often GVHD even happens in the vulva and vagina in, well, I could say in adult women, we don't really know. We have guesstimates, right? Now that we start um, asking people in a standardized way about their GVHD um, symptoms, but from an adolescent perspective and, and a pediatric, we know even less. And so I think it's about making sure that we're asking the questions. Do you have any discomfort in your vulva? Do you ever experience burning or a swelling of your vulva? Um, where if somebody is menstruating, were you able to use tampons and now you can't? or like a new onset of dysmenorrhea or pain with your periods or new pressure symptoms make you think um, there might be a hematocolpose. And, and I think our article very nicely walks people through a step-by-step -step GVHD vulvovaginal exam with the caveat that of course, um, you know, only when an adolescent uh, or young person um, is comfortable with that exam and if it really needs to, to be done versus, um, versus uh, whether or not imaging would help. And I think another key factor is if it looks like GVHD is to really avoid unnecessary biopsies um, of the area. Um, That's a very good point too. Thank you. I know it'll be exciting to hear as we share these stories and sort of open up and have these discussions with patients to see, you know, where I think when we know more, then we're more eager to talk about it more. Yeah. Too. And I think that there are probably opportunities um, for, for research, like with the fellows research consortium, um, because as a single institution, I think it's hard to get the volume um, uh, enough to be able to make um, decisions and, and make really clear um, recommendations. But I think the data that comes from cross-institution um, collaborations is really helpful. Yeah, very good point, absolutely. And then I think in the, in the era of vaccine discussions, <laughs> yeah. we, would be, we would be remiss to not say um, and I'm really glad you um, acknowledged this in the article that it's really important to consider revaccinating with HPV vaccines yeah. uh, in these patients. So that was a great recommendation about a three dose schedule for immunocompromised patients, even if they're younger than 15. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was a really important thing to highlight for these patients, even if they're not necessarily seen in um, all, I mean, a lot of these patients will be seen with all of you in various consultations and specialty centers, but a lot of times they you know, they go out elsewhere and to see other providers and colleagues who may not recognize that need. Yeah, I think that um, 
that, you know, different from our solid organ transplant patients where we recommend immunization prior to their transplant, these are patients that uh, have complete immune reconstitution. So even if they were vaccinated prior to their transplant, they need to be revaccinated after. Yeah, such an and we need to advocate that it's included as part of it. So I can say here in BC, it's a struggle. You know, they get their reg their other vaccines without any cost to them. But if they're, you know, no longer under 19, that's a cost that they now have to bring on themselves. Mm. And so the more that we talk about, the more that we advocate, the more, you know, emphasis that's placed on how important HPV vaccination is to, to people, um, the more that we can then advocate that patients shouldn't have to pay for, for that. Absolutely. That's something I didn't even consider, but absolutely. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that either. And it's interesting that it, it is covered for some and not covered for others. <laughs> and 19 is an interesting age to choose. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you all for being on this call. Dr. Hillary, thank do you, you. Any, other, any other questions or thoughts as we wrap up? No, just uh, thanks for this review. And uh, uh, let's uh, continue to take a look at, at uh, such reviews in, in uh, JPEG. So thank you all. Well, thank thanks you so for much. Inviting us. Thanks, Kate and Nicole. Thanks for being on the call.